I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good afternoon, guys. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And welcome back. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're still chugging along. For me, I'm recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. It looks like we might get rain outside and my boys are sleeping soundly, which is really good. If Ben were awake, we'd still make it through okay. With Eli awake, no, there's no recording when Eli is awake. Today, we're moving on from what we had just been talking about in the previous episodes of the Bible has a historical and cultural context that we need to take in consideration because it helps us to understand what is even going on in the Bible. There's lots of parts of the Bible that you need context for, you need background info for. When it talks about different empires attacking each other, and you don't know the history behind it, yeah, you can still read that and you can still get through it and you might eventually remember a few facts from it, but it's not going to mean a whole lot to you, right? And for some of us, that's kind of okay. <laughs> like we're just not history people. It's not going to make a ton of sense anyway. Even if you learn all the history, I get it. You know, we're not all history people, but it really does help if you really want to understand the Bible on a better level. Just there's so many levels that you can understand the Bible on, on a personal level, on a theological level, on a historical level, you know, all these different things and they work together. And yeah, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot that you could learn to help you understand the Bible. So if you're here and you're listening, good for you. You're doing something to help you understand the Bible. That's what I'm here for. Okay. Today, though, we're going to talk about a slightly different thing, but it's kind of foundational to everything, and that is the canon of scripture, the canon of specifically in this episode, the Old Testament. And what is canon? How did it get that way? Who decided what the canon is? Did anybody decide what the canon is? And all that stuff. Basically, who decided that we would have a holy book that is important? For Christianity. And if you're talking about just the Old Testament, who decided that there was going to be a holy book just for Judaism? We could have been a religion with no holy book or tons of holy books, but we're a religion of one holy book and lots of helpful books. So how did it get that way? That's what we're going to talk about in this episode. And just as a disclaimer, if you're Catholic or orthodox and you're listening to this and you're like, wait a second, you're not talking about my Bible. No, I'm not. <laughs> Today, we're just talking about the Protestant canon of scripture. Okay. In another episode, we're going to talk about the different versions of the Bible according to different traditions of Christianity, Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox. Yeah, we're going to get into all of that. But today, we're just talking about the Protestant canon. That's what evangelicals, Lutherans, Baptists, Anabaptists, Mennonite, Amish, all those kinds of groups. And we'll talk about the differences between the Protestant canon and other canons in another episode. What is the Bible considered and what is canon? 
So canon, let's talk about that word first. A word that means whatever is included in a collection of books that have divine authority. That means that that book represents God or God's word to us. That those books are God's divine revelation. That means what he has shown to people. And that the writers were in some way directed by God. Now, when you start talking about canon and divine revelation and inspiration and being directed by God, you open like 10 cans of worms immediately. So we're going to take one can of worms and open it up right now because you have to. The writers of the Bible were directed by God. Directed how? How do we know that what we have is from God and who decided that? Those are really good questions. And those are the ultimate questions that we're trying to ask and answer when we want to know who wrote the Bible. We're not really asking, did Moses write this or that? Or did David write this or that? What we want to know is, can we trust those guys to have accurately written down what God said to them? And if God didn't explicitly say it to them, why is it in the Bible? And if we don't know who the author is, how can we still trust the book? And things like that. So when we ask, who wrote the Bible? Who decided the canon? How can we trust the Bible? What we're really asking is, how do we know that what we have is from God? So what I found when I was looking into this was I found just a ton of facts and a ton of arguments because there's a lot of disagreement on how to look at this stuff. But when I came down to it, I was like, you know what? What we really need to do is define three different principles. And these three different principles are what people are really arguing about. Okay, so what I might say next, you might disagree with, but I'm going to try and put it as generally as possible so that we can just find out what people are talking about and how they talk about these things. So the first doctrine that we have that we need to define and see what we're talking about and see how it affects what we're talking about with the canon is the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration. And if you think about that word inspiration, there's a couple of words that are related to it. Inspire and a little bit different, but inhale and exhale are actually related to that word inspiration. And that's because we get the word inspiration out of a verse in Timothy where Paul says that the word of God is God breathed. And the idea is that God put his spirit into those words, into the Bible. And you might wonder, okay, that still doesn't tell me why we get breath or inhale, exhale out of it. That is because in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit is the same word as breath and wind. In Hebrew and in Greek, so it doesn't matter which testament you're talking about or which language you're talking about, they both had a similar idea that it was a group of meanings around the word for breath or wind or spirit. So God breathed could have also had this definition or this idea about it of God spirited. God spirited. Okay, so let's talk about inspiration. Christians across the board agree that the Bible is inspired, that God directed the writing of the Bible, and that what we have is the word of God, that the God used the Holy Spirit to somehow write the Bible, that he used people 
They were the people that wrote it down. Their brains came up the, with the proper vocabulary. Their brains put down the punctuation if they used punctuation. But it was directed by the Holy Spirit. And in, there it is, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that the word of God is reliable for all things, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's what you believe, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that's complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Okay, so that's where we get our big idea about the inspiration of scripture is from 2 Timothy 3. And the idea is that the Bible is good for stuff. You can use it for all these different things. You can use it to believe it, to have good beliefs. You can use it to correct people, to show them the right way to live, and for instruction in righteousness so that you know how to live, so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly complete, and furnished for every good work, meaning he knows how to do the good things that he's supposed to be doing. So a nice little summary is that the Bible is good, it's good for stuff, and you can trust it, okay? That's inspiration. Now a second doctrine, and second and third, we're going to talk about two together, but we're going to define them separately first. The second one is infallibility. Infallibility. Belief that all theology in the Bible is accurate. Theology is the study of God, to know about God, to know his relationship with people, how he treats people, his thoughts and activities concerning people, how we interact with God. That's all theology. And there's different, you know, little subsets of theology. But infallibility says that all theology in the Bible is accurate. What we just talked about in Timothy, what we just mentioned, is accurate. But if the writers got a few facts wrong or misspelled something, it's okay. They're human. They're human writers. Just because they're led by the Spirit doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect. That's infallibility, okay? Now, inerrancy is our next one. Inerrancy. And those two words basically mean the same thing, but they're just used for different purposes. So inerrancy, there's a couple of variations of inerrancy. There's complete inerrancy, and this is like the strongest and most strict version, and that is the belief that every word and every fact and every idea in the original document of the, the manuscripts that were written by the original authors was accurate, that the Bible is accurate in regards to science, in, in regards to art and math, and everything else it ever touches on. So when people have this belief, it tends to lead to weird stuff. I'll just be honest with you. This tends to lead to weird stuff because that's when you believe that the earth must be flat because that's how it's talked about in the Bible, where the earth is held up on the four pillars and things like that. And there's a dome over the earth. Well, there can only be a dome over the earth if it's flat. So People that believe that the word of God, every single word and idea in the Bible is accurate and portrays an accurate depiction of reality. That's what they're saying, okay? And you can see why people go there. It's because if you feel like 
one thing in the Bible isn't accurate according to science, you feel like the rest of the Bible is going to fall apart. And if I can't trust this one part, how can I trust any of it? And if I can't use this to make sense of reality, then what am I even doing here? That's how these people are treating the Bible. Okay, so that's complete inerrancy. Then there's restricted inerrancy. And that's basically the same as infallibility, where you believe that everything about the Bible that talks about theology, about God and our beliefs and how we are to interact with God and his nature and his character and all that stuff, that is restricted inerrancy. Okay. And so that's basically the same as infallibility. So some people see inerrancy and infallibility as basically the same thing. Other people see infallibility as the stronger term, the stricter term, and that it means that the Bible can't ever be wrong about anything, including science and math, right? This was, this was where I realized we need to figure this out. And it's really important that you figure out how do you think of the Bible? I'm sure a lot of us grew up thinking a certain way and then kind of changed as time went on. We could have learned about evolution in school and learned about carbon dating and the fossil record and thought, you know, if science says that the earth is millions and billions of years old and the Bible says that it's only six days old, and I, I don't want to throw out science. I don't know what to do here. I'm just going to kind of brush the Bible under the rug and just kind of let that part go for now. And you end up drifting away from the Bible altogether because you don't want to throw either one of them away, but you have to kind of stop thinking about one or the other of them, right? So that's one way that our beliefs and our religion and our scientific minds can clash with each other. And people really had a hard time trying to reconcile the Bible and science. And I didn't realize that the idea of inerrancy and infallibility, the idea that the Bible is perfect and can never be wrong about anything, wasn't really a doctrine until after the Enlightenment. And that is the 16 and 1700s in Europe when science started to really get developed. So that was when there was more science available that seemed to contradict the Bible. So people wanted to defend the Bible against claims that it was wrong in regards to science, especially in regards to things like how the earth is a globe and how the earth revolves around the sun and the moon revolves around the earth because it seemed like in the Bible, it didn't agree. And they were shocked, <laughs> first of all. And then they came up with these doctrines to say, no, look, if you believe in the Bible, you need to believe that everything is right about the Bible. So we're not going to go into, very sorry if this bothers you a lot, but we're not going to go into all of the different ways that you can look at creation and those things. But I will say that a big part of how the Bible portrays science and nature has to do much more with the cultural and historical context in which it was written than about the truth of how the world works. I'm going to say that one more time. 
how the Bible is written in regards to science and nature and creation and all the different scientific things has much more to do with the historical and cultural context of the Bible rather than people's God-given magical knowledge about science. Let's put it that way. We often, (laughs) oh, I'm getting into dangerous territory. Yeah, okay, I'm going to stop there. If you want me to talk more about that stuff, I'm willing to, only if somebody requests it. It was really interesting to me to find out that it was only once science got developed that we started talking about infallibility and inerrancy and inspiration. Inspiration was always an idea. Yeah, we believe that the Bible is the divine revelation of God to men. But then it was only once science was more developed that people realized, oh, we're finding out that this is not necessarily how the Bible talks about this stuff. And we always assumed that the Bible definitely knew how if the earth was flat around like god knows that he created it so you have to put that a little bit on a back burner to realize that people were talking out of their own cultural and historical context about some of those things and god allowed it do you know what that says about god he did not rip people out of their social cultural and historical context to give them information that their brains could not handle. He didn't do it. What does that say about God? It says that he's kind. It says that he's not a bully. It says that he doesn't care about portraying things in a certain way because he's afraid of what people are going to think about him. He's not insecure. I like that about God. I really like that about God. So if that's really hard for you to think about, Uh, email me. (laughs) All right, but we're going to move on to the canon now. All right, so now we're going to move on to the things that I thought I was going to talk about for this episode because I didn't even take that other stuff into consideration before. But this is the stuff that people usually give you answers on when you ask, what's the canon of scripture and how did it get that way? This is where they usually go, okay? So first of all, authority and canonicity are two different things. So our canon of scripture for the Old Testament is Genesis through Malachi. But you might say that a book had or assumed authority as soon as it was written. But you might say that a book had or assumed authority as soon as it was written. It just might not have been generally considered canon as officially recognized from God as officially recognized as from God by Jews or Christians until much later. So there's a little bit of debate about whether biblical writers knew that they were writing authoritative books or that they would be considered that, but that's kind of them knowing the future, right? And ultimately, it doesn't matter if you believe that God had ultimate authority and sovereignty. So if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, that he's fully in control, then you can get into debates about who created the canon and whether there should be a canon of scripture and whether anyone intended for there to be a canon at all. You can talk about, did Moses mean to write down books to make a Bible? (laughs) That's an unanswerable question because we can't possibly know what Moses was thinking and we can't change it anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? But you can look at it that several ways. 
but generally it comes down to what you believe about God. Meaning, do you believe he had sovereignty? Do you believe that he's in charge of this process? Do you believe that it's okay because God made the Bible? Those kinds of things. So besides that, that's one question that you kind of have to settle in your mind before going on. After that, there's different things that you can see in how biblical writers wrote in their books. And there's different like formulas that you can see that tell us they believed that they were having inspiration from God, that they felt they had a message from God that they needed to write down and share with other people. And keep in mind as we're going through this, that's very often talking about the spoken word. Things were written down, but it was often written down in order to be read to people. So here are a couple of the different formulas or phrases that were used that tell us that this person, whoever was writing this, believed he had a message from God, and that is what we would consider inspired, having inspiration. So one word, (laughs) you recognize this out of the King James, thus saith the Lord, right? If somebody is saying, thus saith the Lord, they're saying, I'm quoting God. This is what God said to me and what I'm telling you because I'm just delivering the message. Thus saith the Lord. Very similar. The word of the Lord came to me. And that is just a passive way of saying, thus saith the Lord. Zechariah and Jeremiah use those phrases. There are books that don't have prophecy or direct messages from God, like Ecclesiastes and Esther. A side note, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? Those are books of the Bible and other books in scroll form found in a cave starting in 1948 in Israel that are a glimpse into the past of what biblical books looked like in 200, 100 BC and 180. Those were when they were written. And those books are, they found thousands of books, by the way. And a lot of them they just have fragments for because they disintegrated, fell apart. I mean, come on, they're 2,000 years old. You got to forgive, you got to forgive these scrolls a little bit because they've had a rough life. But out of that collection of scrolls that are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in those caves in the desert in southern Israel, there were only, let's see, Esther was the only book of the Old Testament Bible that was not represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So when people talk about, oh, you know, we don't even know if they had that book back then. Like it could have been written and then nobody else read it. No. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, that were all squirreled away in these caves around no later than 100 AD. Every single book of the Old Testament was represented and had multiple copies of it, except for Esther. That's the only one. So that doesn't prove it's scripture, but it does prove that people had these books in in their possessions and that we have accurate copies of them. All right. Another way that we know what was considered Old Testament, what was considered the Jewish Bible, is to look at New Testament people, such as Jesus and the apostles, and see how they talked about the Old Testament books. How did they talk about Genesis and Esther and Ruth and Ecclesiastes and Samuel and Deuteronomy? Did they talk about these books? How did they reference them? 
How did they use them? Okay. So from how we know New Testament people, that is in the 100s AD or the zeros AD really, is how they talked about them. And what we know is that the canon of scripture, what the Jews considered to be their Bible, was set by the time of Jesus. They agreed on what they considered to be their Bible. Josephus, one of the historians that we, we get a lot of stuff from Josephus because we don't have a ton of historians that directly talked about Palestine slash Israel at the time of Jesus and before. So Josephus says that the Bible, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament for us Christians, was the Pentateuch, which is what Moses largely wrote, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, up until Malachi. That's what he considered the Jewish Bible. And that's what he was saying the Jews considered their Bible. And Malachi was alive during the Babylonian captivity, around the 500s BC. Jesus, we have Jesus quoting from the Old Testament, and he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He mentions three different parts of scripture, of holy writings, that we now know encapsulate the Pentateuch, which is that first five books, the prophets, which are all the prophetic books that we have, and then the Psalms was a kind of a collective term to mean other writings, different poetic books, things that didn't fit into the category of law and prophets. And when writers and disciples talked about the scriptures or holy writings, or used the term, it is written, they're talking about their Bible. Whenever you see in the New Testament the phrase, it is written, or in the scriptures it says, they're talking about the holy writings, the Bible, their Old Testament Bible. So whenever you hear that phrase, you can immediately think that's what they're talking about, their Bible, that they're considering it their Bible. The last books that were written chronologically of the Old Testament are Esther, Ezra, Malachi, Joel, and Nehemiah. They were the last books written chronologically in about the time of the captivity, which is 500s BC, so 500 years before Jesus. Then there was this period called the intertestamental period, and Christians use this term the most, but it's a, it's a scholarly term. It's used by professors. It's used by people that study books and history of the ancient Near East because we're talking about in between the Old and New Testament, intertestamental period, from 400 BC, 400 years before Jesus, until whenever the first book was written, until the you can say the time of Jesus, that's the intertestamental period. There was no other books written. That's why they say there is no prophecy after Malachi. Even Jews were concerned, why is there no more prophecy? Why is God no longer speaking to us? They considered their own canon to be closed because there was no more prophecy. And we know what happened in this period, and we know of other books that were written not prophetic books, not books that were considered canon, but we know of other books, especially through other history and through the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have a whole bunch of books, literature books, history books, all kinds of things that are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls 
that aren't considered canon by the Jews. So other books exist, but the Jews knew there was no more prophecy, no more inspired books of the Bible. And so they considered their canon closed after Malachi. Now, how do Christians consider it a canon, the Old Testament canon? Guess what? They base it just directly on what the Jews believed. They say, okay, should this book belong in the Old Testament canon? No, Jews didn't consider it a part of their canon, so we're not going to either. And that's how it's done. (laughs) It's pretty cut and dried, right? It's pretty simple. Now, how did Jews decide on their canon? That's a good question. Some of it we don't know. But there's two big factors that play into how Jews decided their canon. Number one, historical accuracy. If a book just talked about random events and talked about other random events and they're like, what is this? They didn't include it. So there was a standard for accuracy. Number two, there was a standard for not contradicting other doctrine, other beliefs, and other uh, historical accuracy and other principles in the Bible. So just to recap a bit, part of how we know about what Jesus' time and people in his period of time thought of books and whether they believed to be canon or not is to look at how they talked about them. If they called them the scriptures, they were talking about the Old Testament. They were talking about their Bible. If they said it was the word of the Lord, they were talking about their Bible. Jesus and the apostles and Paul, etc., talked about the Old Testament a lot. They quoted from it. They used references from it. They alluded to it using little imagery here and there. Revelation is full of imagery from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted directly 283 times. I don't know if you think that's a big number or a small number. I think it's a big number. 283 direct quotes and direct mentions of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And there's only a handful of books that are not quoted in the New Testament. Those are kind of maybe Ruth, (laughs) Esther, Song of Solomon, Obadiah, and Ecclesiastes. I said maybe Ruth because Ruth herself is mentioned in the New Testament but there are no references to something written directly in the book. And there's different lists that you can look up to see uh, quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament. One thing that I did years ago was that I went through a whole list of quotations and I highlighted every single time an Old Testament verse was quoted in the New Testament. I made it really dumb because I didn't put the <laughs> I didn't put the reference next to it of where it's quoted in the New Testament. But now every time I see highlighting in my Bible, I know that what I'm reading was quoted in the New Testament. It makes it interesting because then I'm thinking, oh, how could that apply to something in the New Testament? And about half the time I can know where it's mentioned, but other times I'm like, really? This is in there? And it shows me how little I know about the Bible when I can't even recognize where those things are from. Okay, but there's different lists about, okay, these are books that are directly uh, quoted, and these are books that are kind of talked about, and then these are 
books that have an allusion to it where you you know that they're generally talking about that book and they want you to think about that book, but they don't directly quote from it. Okay, so there's different ways to use the Old Testament and the New Testament. But yeah, there's only a handful that are not directly mentioned or referred to in the New Testament. And you can kind of understand some of these. Esther. What do we need to quote from Esther in the New Testament? Nothing springs to mind. And then Song of Solomon. It's all love poetry. I guess they didn't have a need to quote love poetry, which is fine. <laughs> I don't feel uneasy knowing that they didn't quote love poetry when Paul was talking to, I don't know, a church problem. But all of those books that I just mentioned are historically accurate and they don't contradict anything from anywhere else in the Bible, Old Testament or New. So guys, this is getting to be a longer <laughs> podcast. So what I think I'm going to do is we're going to stop here and we're going to pick up again next time with a, a little bit more information about the canon. And then I'll give you some other information about what did the Bible look like in Moses' time? And what did the Bible look like at the time of the Babylonian captivity? What did physically people have in their hands? How was it made? Who would have had one? And all those kinds of things, okay? I hope you guys had a good time. Uh, I hope I stirred up some controversy a little bit. And I hope you guys have a good one. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.